Hey, podcast listeners. My name is Mark Rayshop. This is Another Bottle Down. Thank you so much for checking us out. A couple months ago, in January of 2017, uh, the Pinot in the City trade tasting was passing through Austin, and I, of course, went and was tasting through some wines, and I saw uh, a couple wines that I had heard and read a little bit about, but had never tasted before. Uh, I had known some of the vineyards, as particularly Zena Crown, um, pretty well, and uh, and the other wine was Grand Moraine. So I stopped by the table to taste and uh, met Shane Moore, who uh, was the winemaker, really enthusiastic, really passionate, and uh, we really hit it off, and and I thought that I had to uh, get his voice on the airwaves in Austin, Texas, and and out there in podcast land. So uh, this is Shane Moore. He's winemaker. He's been making wine all over the world, Um, and he is now in Oregon with Grand Moraine and Xena Crown, uh, which was purchased by Jackson Family Estates. And uh, so without further ado, we're going to get into our interview. I hope you enjoy it. Shane, welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. Thanks. So, you know, I tasted the wines at this event, and uh, the wines are just beautiful, um, powerful, but balanced. And, um, you know, so I I really look forward to digging into the wines, your uh, winemaking style. And, you know, I guess we should start with the vineyard itself, because um, pretty much they're all single vineyard wines, right? Yeah, so we make uh, we make both the Zena Crown and Grand Marine brands out at the Grand Marine Winery in the thriving metropolis of Yam Hill, Oregon. <laughs> Population about 550, I believe nowadays. Wow! Um, but a lot of visitors, right? To wine it's tourists. It's pretty quiet out here. Yeah. There's a there's one dive bar and a Mexican food restaurant and a pizza joint, and that's about it. And I bet so. they're slammed during harvest, right? <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> it's very true. It's a it's a great place. Very bucolic. Um, really, really beautiful. Um, and we're only an hour from Portland, so we we are pretty close to a metro area, actually. Yeah. Well, um, you're relatively new to the area, and you've been all over the world, which I really look forward to hearing from some of your experiences there. But let's kind of paint that picture of you know the vineyard itself, and and then what's with the name Grand Moraine? I love I love the name, and I think it has to do with the geography, right? Yeah. So <laughs> we uh, we all we sort source our fruit from all estate vineyards. Uh, we have three different vineyards, uh, two in the Yamhill Carlton. One's called the Grand Moraine Vineyard. Uh, we actually purchased that in 2013, but it was an established vineyard. It was established in 2005. And given that name uh, through the Cowpers Project, which was a investment firm uh, investing in vineyards throughout the western United States, very, very interesting stuff there. And uh, our other two, uh, we have a small vineyard around the Grand Moraine Winery, and we have a vineyard down in the Eola Amity Hills called Zena Crown. Yeah. And uh, that's both the namesakes for both those brands, I guess. Yeah, and so, um, you know, real briefly, the that Cal Paris project that you mentioned that planted planted those vineyards, uh, boy, some, some heavy-hitting vineyards uh, part that kind of came out of that, right? Yeah, there were, I mean, some of the best-known vineyards in the western United States, really, uh, Gap's Crown being one down in the uh, Petaluma Gap of Sonoma County, um, really well-known vineyard. Yeah. Um, Some of the others up here include the Rose Rock Vineyard that Domain Druin is now doing a project around. Right. And the Willakaya Vineyard that um, Arath is really uh, doing a project around now as well. So 
They were all designed by a person named William Hill, the Bill Hill label you might be familiar with. So right, the, of, it's a pretty famous one. From uh, yeah. uh, but then he sold that right, and then and then kind of started doing the real the, the the vineyard exploration thing. Exactly. So yeah. he sold that, I believe, to Gallo. I could be mistaken there. I think but, it's uh, it's owned by Gallo now, but I think yeah. that there was an owner before Gallo. Oh, okay, okay, and he was he's honestly one of the most respected uh, vineyard developers in, yeah. in the United States anyway. So he kind of developed all these vineyards back in the early 2000s, which was really cool. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so you know, back to kind of, you know, your vineyards, um, kind of tell us just a little bit about, you know, give us a scope as to the size or, you know, what what kind of is planted. I mean, we're in Oregon, right? So we're, 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 we're focusing on Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, right? Uh, totally correct. Um, so they're pretty large vineyards as far as Oregon goes. Uh, we're very well known for our small little 10-acre vineyards right, uh, right. dotted throughout the landscape. Um, the Grand Moraine Vineyard itself is 220 acres planted, which yeah. is pretty large. And that's uh, about 200 acres of Pinot Noir and the rest Chardonnay, which actually makes it one of the larger Chardonnay plantings in Oregon, um, believe it or not. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, with not a lot of Chardonnay up here, which it's, uh, I think there's more and more being planted. Uh, the future is definitely brighter than the past for Chardonnay in Oregon. We're all very excited about it. Yeah, and and as a side note, that Chardonnay that we tasted at the at the Pinot in the City event just blew my mind. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's a it's a fun wine. It's uh, you put it in front of MSs and they have a hard time placing it. If yeah. it you know, is it Merceau? Is it Puni? Is it? Very rarely do they guess Oregon actually right away. So right, right, pretty exciting. Can you um, you know just from a winemaker's point of view, can you kind of give us your thoughts as far as, you know, the different regions of Oregon, maybe within the Willamette Valley, just broad brushstrokes to kind of give everybody a context? Um, yeah. So the Willamette Valley is huge. I mean, in terms of viticultural regions, uh, it takes uh, about three hours to drive from north to south on the I-5 um, yeah. to get all the way through the Willamette. So it's massive. Um Right. But most of the vineyards that we think of in the Willamette are in the far north end, kind of near Portland. And there's five sub-AVAs within that sort of region there. And um, Yamhill Carlton, Eola Amity being two. Right. Uh, the other ones are Shehalem Mountains, Ribbon Ridge, and Dundee Hills. Um, and they're all kind of, I guess, uh, delineated uh, on several factors, uh, climate as well as soil. Right. Um, the Dundee Hills would be the warmest uh, uh, AVA, and it's all on volcanic soil, on basalt soil, what we know as Jory. Um, right. The Grand Moraine Vineyards in the Yamhill Carlton, and that's on sedimentary, marine sedimentary soil, so it used to be a seafloor, actually, um, way, way back in the day. And um, the Yamhill Carlton is a little bit one of the warmer sites, not as warm as Dundee, but it uh, produces kind of more sort of dark uh, dark flavors and aromas in Pinot Noir. And, and generally, the wines can be very big wines as well, kind of like the Cote, um, the Cote Nuit region in Burgundy. Right, right. So more of the Chevry Chambertin, like bigger structure style, that sort of thing. Exactly, exactly. Cool. cool. And then the Old Amity uh, down south where the Zena Crown Vineyard is, uh, that's in 
what we call the, it's kind of right in the wake of the Van Duzer Corridor, which is a big, uh, I guess, gap in the coastal range between the ocean and the Willamette Valley, and it pulls a lot of cold air every night during the summer. So the Olamity Hills is very cool. It's the coolest of the sub-AVAs. Despite being further south. Despite being further south, yeah, yeah it's kind of uh, interesting, and that's just kind of a geological oddity, more or less. Um, well, it just goes to show, you know, how important, you know, not just the soil and, um, you know, and the grape varieties and all that, but the airflow. I, I once was actually talking with Bill Hill, um, and in his mind, uh, he like kind of sees the air moving like almost in vectors, um, and, and and that is kind of essential for for, for vineyards and, and how they avoid mold, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And airflow is flow is a big deal. If you not don't have enough of it, you know, you can have powdery mildew issues or botrytis issues, things like that. And and it also really does affect the general microclimate as yeah, well. Right. Um, so yeah, the old Amity is quite a bit cooler. We're actually harvesting it about two full weeks later than we would harvest in the Yamhill Carlton. Wow. And yeah. do you, so do you have um, a little bit of Chardonnay down there as well? We have just a little bit, not yeah. a lot. So the Zena Crown Vineyard is just over 100 acres, and we've only got seven acres of Chardonnay on that. And okay, cool. it's all on volcanic soil. So the, the Chardonnays from the Gramarain Vineyard and the Eolamity Zena Crown Vineyard are in phenomenally different. Yeah. Um, I'm learning kind of more about soils with Chardonnay now. We all are. And it almost seems to have more of an effect on Chardonnay than it is even on Pinot Noir, which is pretty wild. Right, because Pinot is thought to be the, the, the real true expression of, of the soil. And so you're finding it, it actually is more amplified with Chardonnay. I'm finding, yeah, we all are up here. We're really, uh, we're starting to kind of develop our vernacular and, and really understand how soil relates to, to Chardonnay mouthfeel and texture and flavor and all that. And uh, we're very surprised at how much of an of a influence it has. So do you think that, you know, we always think of Oregon as maybe a little bit more like Burgundy. Um, I don't know if that, that metaphor is maybe overused or not, but, um, I mean, do you think that you are, as a collective community, trying to dig more into that, excuse the pun, uh, dig more into that uh, and trying to understand that than, say, maybe your counterparts in California? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, you know, and, and it, this isn't just like California at all. No. And, and I say that we're doing it because for us, it's, it's simple. Um, Oregon really only has two distinct different types of soil. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you go down to Sonoma County where they're growing Pinot Noir, there are so many soil types that it's almost like you just can't wrap your head around it. I'm, I'm not for sure if this is entirely accurate, but... Someone once told me that there are as many soil types in Sonoma County as there are in all of France. So wow. it's, it's mind-bending down there. So for us, it's just a little bit easier. We, we don't have nearly as much variety. Yeah, yeah. So a little bit more straightforward is that. And then it, it, and when a vineyard, so more homogeny, um, uh, homogeneous soils like within a vineyard, because that's a big thing that a lot of winemakers talk about, where if you have a plot or a little subsection of the vineyard that might have something different, you could, you know, really uh, save that and vinify it separately and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it can make it for a real challenge, right? Yeah, yeah, it definitely can, particularly in California. We have a little bit of that, particularly down in the Olamity Hills in AVA in Oregon. Um, it's a mashup of both soil types. So the Zena Crown Vineyard, 
we'll have uh, marine sedimentary soil right next to um, volcanic soil. Right. And we're also, we have a very interesting soil type there, too, that's um, tufa, or it's based on tufa, which is just volcanic ash. Yeah. And uh, it looks white like limestone, but uh, it's, it's certainly not limestone. It's just white volcanic ash. So is that kind of the same thing that you find in southern Italy, like, um, you know, that, that Fiano and Greco di Tufo are planted on? Exactly. It is, it's that same stuff, and it's really rare here. So uh, really? we've got Chardonnay planted on it. I'm very excited to kind of, we just planted it three years ago, so... Wow. Really excited to work with that fruit in the future. So, any other any other varieties that you've got that that you know, as we're kind of uh, finishing this discussion on the vineyards, or we can you know talk for a lot longer on vineyards too. But um, any other varieties that that are kind of interesting or um, you know either present or future? Um, for for our vineyards, we're only Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Yeah. Um, you know, that's pretty much 80 to 90% of the vineyards up here. Right. Um, we do have, I guess, a tiny, tiny bit, two acres of Pinot Blanc, which is kind of fun. Right. And, um, you know, there's quite a bit of Pinot Gris up here, but, uh, you know, um, Oregon, the northern Willamette, has really hung its hat on Chardonnay and Pinot. Yeah. And ju- rightly so. They're, you know great examples of those wines and they're super delicious so oh i know i mean you know king and queen for sure <laughs> yeah for sure <laughs> well so um okay so the plant the vineyards were planted in 05 or you know remind me again so 05 was yeah. the 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 Gremorain vineyard and and zena crown as well actually. Oh, okay both of them in 05 so i mean still relatively young but but they passed that 10-year mark do you agree with that kind of 10-year mark to see a vineyard kind of come into a little bit more of its adult life I, I totally agree with that. I yeah. think it's around like year eight, whenever it's kind of hitting um, almost puberty. Yeah, <laughs> right. Just right. starting to become mature. And then, you know, you get to 10 and 12 years, and yeah, you've got a pretty much a vineyard running on all cylinders by that point. Um, yeah. And you've got another 15, 20 years at least of, of really phenomenal production. Yeah, so you see, and, and how does that translate in the wine? I mean, you know, have you had kind of some of the wines from the earlier days of this vineyard? And uh, how do the wines change, you know, when the, when the vine is kind of in different stages of its life? Yeah, um, that's kind of, that's a great question. Um, you know, when vines are really young, uh, like third and fourth year old, uh, they don't have full canopies, and they don't have very deep root systems. So they're a little bit more delicate, and particularly they're maybe a little bit more, um, I guess, uh, expressive of vintage variation. Because if you have a really warm year, you know, you might get more sunburnt because you're having more fruit exposure. Right. And you might get more desiccation because your roots aren't quite as established either. Right, right. Um, so I think that has a lot to do with that. And once... You know, you hit that 8, 10-year mark and, you know, 12 years. It seems like you get a lot more sort of, I, I find it almost about consistency, really. Yeah. I, I know what to expect from these blocks, and they're, they're really kind of just coming into their own, and, and they're more and more consistent every year. There still is vintage variation, but it doesn't seem like it's yeah. quite as much. And I'd love to talk to you with, uh, about vintage in a second here, because we've seen some real big swings in Oregon in the last last several years. Um, but but so, you know, so 05, the vineyards were planted, and then, and then um, 
you know, you're then then these two projects are are owned by uh, Jackson Family Estates, right? That's and, correct. And and they just give you, you know, I was really inspired when we talked because uh, essentially they just give you free reign to do whatever you want uh, in there. You've got a nice kind of nice nice bankroll, and they trust you for your creative and and your vineyard manager. Um, correct? Uh, I'm forgetting his name. His name's King Coverman. He's outstanding. He's been farming these properties since 2007. Yeah, so can you talk about um, your relationship with him and, and kind of what it's like throughout the growing season and how you work with him and how a winemaker and a viticulturist work kind of together hand in hand? Because it's, it's always a joint. And maybe we could throw in kind of the business manager, too. Um, because Eugenia. The, yeah, Eugenia. The, so, that, yep. you know, it uh, all kind of so, comes together. You know, with every vineyard manager, winemaker relationship, they're all they're all very different you know it just depends on people's personalities and and what they're really good at actually um you know some vineyard managers are really good at uh crop uh, managing people and and maybe making sure that the vineyard is running efficiently efficiently but maybe they're not the best at making sure that they're farming only for quality so mm. you know every relationship is different um Mine and Ken relationship is is really really fun. Um, we have a lot in common. Uh, going even like we both worked in Israel in in the wine uh, regions of Israel. Yeah. Uh, we're both really passionate about making the best wine we possibly can. Right. So and Ken has a great palate and really loves wine as well. So he's really passionate about that too. So. That makes my job a lot easier. Yeah, right. When you're on the same page, instead of like, I guess a less in sync relationship might result in like him wanting to grow for 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 quantity and you being like, ah, oh, come on, why is that vineyard crop so heavy? Exactly. Um, and and I have I have a degree in horticulture, so I I love vineyards and I love getting out in them, and I kind of have a schedule built out every year on. This, you know, these things should be done by this date, be it um, shoot thinning or leaf pulling or, you know, things like that. Um, Handwork is what we call it in vineyards. Yeah. And a lot of the time I'll go out into the vineyard just to have a peek and thinking, oh, the shoot thinning should be starting about now. And it'll already be done. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, you know, he's and, already got it taken care of. And probably meticulous work. I would imagine you go to some vineyards and you're like, well, you know, there's, there's sometimes, you know, it's so, it's so there's not just one right way to do things in vineyards, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and um, there isn't. And, and that's also what's so great about Ken is he's been farming these vineyards since really they started producing fruit. He knows them better than anyone. Yeah. And, um, you know, he, he really knows how to coax the best quality out of them as well. And, and we're both on the same page, so it's all about quality. Yeah, so. Is, is, so you're out in the vineyard. Is he Does he poke around the winery, too, with you, uh, barrel tasting occasionally? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, this Friday, actually, we're going to sit down and taste all the blocks together. Cool. And, you know, we really, you know, those blocks that are making the truly, truly exceptional wines, the, you know, for lack of a better term, the Grand Cru blocks, you know, right, right. Um, those ones, you know, we'll taste together and, and make sure that they're getting a little bit extra love and things like that as well. So. Yeah. Well, can we, uh, if you're just joining us, my name is Mark Rayshap. We're here with Shane Moore, who's winemaker, head winemaker of Zena Crown and Grand Moraine out of uh, the Willamette Valley, Yamhill Carlton and Eola Amity Hills. Thank you again, Shane, for being here. Um, can, can we... Can we talk about your background a little bit? I mean, you've you've trotted around some pretty interesting wine regions. 
Yeah. 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 I love talking about it. So it's fun. We all have kind of interesting stories how we get into the wine industry, and mine's uh, the same. Um, I grew up in central Idaho on a cattle ranch, yeah. so not really a whole lot of wine going on there, <laughs> right. even though it is an emerging wine region. Yeah. And when I was uh, just turned 20 years old, actually, I met a guy in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, who was trucking fruit over from the Horse Heaven Hills and making wine in Coeur d'Alene for a winery called Coeur d'Alene Cellars. Yeah. And um, they're making great wine still to this day. He had just started that brand at that point. Right. And I, um, I somehow talked him into hiring me. <laughs> I don't know how I did it. <laughs> but uh, that's kind of how I got into the wine industry and um, started Fearless, working. man. It's, you know, it's all about being fearless. <laughs> yeah, I think with exactly. every industry, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first day I, I went to work was the first time I'd ever seen a wine barrel, so I knew nothing. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. And, um, yeah, after that, I, I got my winemaking viticulture degree, um, from Washington State University, go Cougs. Yeah, now, was um, was Jim Harbertson there at the time? Did you? St- uh, he, I graduated just before he started. Um, okay. But, yeah, he's an outstanding professor. Yeah, and just one of the one of the guys who, uh, you know, I, I was kind of poking around Washington State as well during, you know, kind of the height of his research on phenolics and all that kind of stuff. So, like, I just, you know, was, I, I would seize any opportunity to, uh, to, to go to a seminar of his or anything like that. He's a great speaker, too. Yeah, no doubt about that. Okay, so, so, so you, you know, you delve into the academics of, uh, of, of wine and, and, you know, what, what wines were you kind of inspired at the time? I mean, were you drinking only, I mean, you were obviously drinking Washington wine, but did, were you like, hey, I need to drink some French wine, too, and, and have a perspective? Yeah, you know, I, definitely I consider the owners and the winemaker at Coeur d'Alene Cellars to kind of be my first mentors. And we were drinking some, you know, Rhones. We were making making mostly uh, Rhone varietal Syrah and Viognier, right. and we were drinking some Rhones. But I think the seminal wine moment, I think we all have those, is um, the winemaker at Coeur d'Alene Cellars used to be at Farniente in the 70s. Wow. And I, I believe it was 2004 he brought in a vertical of Fardiente cabs from, I think it was 71 until 77 or something like that. Wow. And, you know, at that time, those wines were 10 years older than I was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and it just blew me away, you know, that the wines could be so delicious at that age. And and I think that was the the tasting for me that was like, wow, okay, this is this is what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. For me, it was in in Spain, uh, in the Priorat region, and you know, they I, I was was out to dinner with a group of winemakers, and they just uh, had like every little block and exposure. Then they were talking about it, and we were tasting the wines, and they were just killer. So, so that was my uh, moment where I knew I would be uh, infatuated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it, the, you get bitten by the bug, and I know it, um, I know it, it takes you. Yeah. So, so then it took you to 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 other countries too, right? Yeah. So after college, uh, after I graduated university, I went up to British Columbia. My um, my sort of thoughts there were, well, I'm a really avid skier, and yeah. uh, I don't know if you've ever been to the Soyuz region or the Okanagan region of British Columbia. It's 
incredibly beautiful. Yeah, I have not been there, which is such a shame after you know living in Seattle for a while. But um, but but no, I hear the the beauty is just breathtaking. It's it's just a. It kind of reminds me of the Central Otago a little bit. The big mountains and the big lakes and all that at Central Otago in New, New Zealand. Zealand. Yeah. Um, and I went and worked. Uh, I was a winemaker at a winery called Burling Al up there for a while, and that was a lot of fun. And I lived in a vineyard and could be at the ski hill in 30 minutes. So it was like, it was the best of everything. <laughs> yeah, wow, wow. And so there it was like the elevation. Um, I mean, how, so how were the vineyards not too cold? I mean. Yeah, uh, so it's, uh, it's pretty low in elevation. It's under 1,000 feet. Yeah. But uh, in a Soyuz in the lower Okanagan Valley, it's actually Canada's only desert. And it's the warmest place in all of Canada. Yeah. Um, I remember during the summer it being 46 degrees uh, Celsius, which is really hot. Really hot. Wow. <laughs> so wow. It gets hot there. Yeah. And uh, conversely, the winters get cold, but, um, you know, through good viticulture, they're able to not have too much vine death or anything like that, even with Vitis vinifera. Yeah, cool. Um, where'd you go from there? Uh, so uh, after about two years there, um, it was a little bit too rural for me, so I decided to start traveling again. And um, so I worked in Western Australia for three harvests after that, uh, wow. which was really fun, and uh, the Margaret River wine region. Which is um, which is just kind of exploding right now in quality, and um, you know it's a, that's a relatively new region. Uh, I had on uh, Virginia Wilcock uh, on this show, who um, I don't know if you kind of hung out with her at all when you were out there, but uh, amazing, amazing woman. I I only met her briefly, but yeah, uh, some great people out there. The wines are truly phenomenal for for my dollar. I think they're some of the uh, best New World cabs out there. I, I just love them. Cabs and Chardonnay, and Chardonnay too. too. Yeah, yeah. Did um, but totally different from your California. What you're making up in Oregon, um, really interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, it 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 was different, but you know, it's still kind of a cool climate for Cabernet. And then if you go south down to Pemberton, I was working down there too. Um, in Pemberton, Western Australia. It, they're actually growing some nice Pinots down there. Um, a couple wineries called Picardy and Salatage are doing some good stuff. Yeah, and some and some Riesling there as well, or you have to go kind of um, further f- further out? A little bit of Riesling. Uh, yeah. You know, the Franklin River region is really well known for Riesling, which is down in southwest Australia too. Right, right. Um, so yeah, that was that was a great experience. In between, I was going uh, back and forth to well, oh man, yeah, you one can do this back and forth to California, and then one vintage over to the Golan Heights in in um, Israel. Yeah, so well. of course, Southern Hemisphere, you know, harvest is around you know March April time, and then you've got Northern Hemisphere harvest, you know, September October ish. One of the best ways to see the world. You get to go somewhere for three months. You get to work, <laughs> which really kind of completely immerses you in the culture yeah and you get to learn about wine and you know generally wine people i don't care where they're at they're pretty fun pretty fun right right (laughs) um well so and then boy israel i mean you know what was that like that was that was really fun so we were making kosher wines and i'm not a jewish person i I of course don't observe um shabbat so i couldn't touch anything right so (laughs) 
<laughs> anytime I was in the cellar, I had to be escorted by one of the cellar workers who um, was an observant Jew wow. and um, could only really write work orders and taste wine. So even to taste from a tank, I had to have someone pulling samples for me. Really? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so, right. I mean, wine has to be kosher. And then in order to have kosher wine, everybody who touches it uh, through the process and works on it has to, has to uphold the Sabbath. Correct. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and um, which is different from Mavushal, which uh, is kind of an interesting um, subtopic. But where <laughs> Mavushal could be, correct me if I'm wrong, and I don't know if they did this, but you you can like uh, bring it down low or or flash pasteurize it or whatever. Exactly, and um, no, so we were completely doing it. Uh, you know, uh, I guess just kosher uh, yeah right it has according to, yeah. only to kosher practices right which is the stronger of the two yeah yep and it was great it was a phenomenal experience um how many wineries it, were there at the time i mean uh, you know last i think i checked there was like 10 15 15 you know wineries kind of uh, that ha- that were making kind of a mark or so yeah and you know there's probably a good 15 to 20 you could buy outside of Israel. Right, okay. Um, I did get to go to a wine festival while I was there, and there must have been 70 or 80 wineries at, at the wine festival, um, all the way wow. to the south and to the Judean Desert, um, all the way up north to the Lebanon border. Remarkable, though, you know, going from Canada to then, you know, kind of desert, you know, Middle East. It's just, uh, it's just wild. Yeah, and it, you know, Israel is is a wild grape growing region. We were growing Muscat below sea level, um, <laughs> n- near the Dead Sea, wow. and that started harvest. Uh, it was about the first of August, and we were growing Pinot Noir all the way up at about 6,000 feet um, Whoa. near up in a crater of a volcano. So wow. <laughs> the harvest is the longest harvest I've ever worked in my life. It started, we started making <laughs> sparkling wine the last week of July, and we finished our, uh, we were harvesting Tariga and Tentacal um, the first week of November. Wow. So oh it was pretty God. wild. Yeah. Hey, if you're just joining us, my name is Mark Rayshap. We're here with Shane Moore, who is winemaker of Grand Moraine and Zena Crown. Uh, Shane, we need to take a short break, and we'll come on right back. Great. So we're just kind of wrapping up your your history. I mean, you've been out to Margaret River, Australia, making wine in Israel. Um, so how did you kind of settle into Oregon? Um, so being a Northwest uh, boy and growing up in the Northwest, you, I, you know, it's always it gets it gets under your skin. I, I know you lived up in Seattle. I I bet you kind of felt the same way. And, yeah. Um, I've always wanted to make Pinot Noir in Oregon. I've always loved the wines. Uh, ever since I started drinking wine, I thought the wines were delicious. The culture here really uh, suits me very, very well. It's kind of this uh, outdoor chic, um, plaid, plaid-wearing, beard-growing <laughs> foodie culture. Yeah, I, hey, and but and and real people, right? You know, they're, it's kind of exactly. not a lot of pretense. It's a it's a it's a neat place. The, the, I mean, I always think I always talk about uh, we talk about terroir in the wine industry all the time. Something that people forget is a big part of terroir is culture, and yeah. I think Oregon's got that in spades. So, 
really wanted to move back here. Um, and so I was working in Sonoma County for Jackson Family Wines, a Chardonnay winemaker for La Crema, yeah. which, um, you know, you can find them about anywhere, really. That was a lot of fun. And whenever these uh, vineyards, the Zena Crown Grand Marine Vineyards, came up for sale, uh, I had, had a lot of friends in, in this region, in McMinnville and the North Willamette Valley. And I basically knew a lot about the vineyards already. Right. Right. And whenever we were purchasing these and starting a new project, I talked to ownership of the company and said, hey, if you want a winemaker up there, I'm your man. Yeah. And uh, they took me up on it. So, so I was awesome. up here a couple months later. Wow. Wow. And, um, and again, you know, you're just, uh, you know, your passion for, for the region really comes through, I think both in the, in the wines and just your storytelling about it. Um, can you, so you, you mentioned something I want your, your opinion on, um, and talking about that, that part of terroir as uh, a piece of the culture, which is something that, you know, wine professionals really don't like to talk about. Um, you know, everything needs to be hands-off, you know, hands-off winemaking, and, you know, in such an vogue. Can, can you be a hands-off winemaker? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question, too. Um, you know, I I guess I am a hands-off winemaker, and I'm not at the same time because my my whole philosophy in wine is that everything matters, and I think yeah. that that kind of gets lost in in the storytelling of wine. So often we we tell stories about wine all the time because wine really is stories, yeah. but we try to simplify them a little bit too much, in in my opinion. So for me, you know, yes, I I. Uh, like our Chardonnay is all native ferments, and I've not fined a wine since I've moved here. Um, I don't mind filtering because I don't like solids in my wine, actually. But right. that's probably the most invasive winemaking technique I use. Um, but for me, it's it's down to the music you're playing in the cellar. The reggae music we have on on Monday mornings is an important part of the wine. Right. And, and, you know, that, yeah. I think that often gets lost. Right. And, and you see that with, um, you know, with, with winemakers who have their stint or with like a generation in Burgundy where, you know, you, you might have this new generation that takes on a different philosophy and the wines change. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I mean, I, I can't just begin to describe to you how different a wine can be from the same fruit if it's just made at, you know, in a different building, uh, you're, especially if you have a native ferment, it's yeah. going to be different native fauna growing, you know, it's going to be different native yeast culture. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, uh, there are winemaking experiments, Irie and Oregon's doing one with music, playing different musics to, to Pinot Noir, and the wines are totally different. Really? It's, it's totally incredible. <laughs> Stuff like that, it just fascinates me. Dude, you got to keep me up, updated with that study. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great! You can you can purchase their uh, their wine. So oh, and, and it's they got... actually do it as a three pack. It's uh, <laughs> John Coltrane, um, some opera singer I can't remember now, and like grunge music. <laughs> and 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 it and it totally makes a difference. I mean, it's not oh, just it, like in it your totally mind. Does I mean is causation equal, is correlation equal causation? I don't know. Right, you know, right, but right. It, it's 
it, it's food for thought anyway. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's let talk. Let's talk about. I mean, you have some uh, pretty crazy things that you do in the in the winery that I think a lot of. Uh, or correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, uh, when we were chatting for the first time, I was like, "Wow, this guy is kind of kind of crazy. He just he'll do whatever he wants to do." <laughs> <laughs> Like yeah. in a good way, you know, in yeah, a way no, where it's, uh, I I often, you know, I I tell people I'm fairly reckless, but I'm not dumb. And <laughs> that's great. That's great. I, I'll I'll uh, I'll use that one with my wife uh, <laughs> soon. No, I I think some of our winemaking practices are fairly reckless, but I think that's how you can really make these truly exceptional class wines yeah. that, are, that will stand the test of time and put something that's really special out there. Yeah, so so give us a few examples as as to as to that and like maybe maybe what, you know, the books would say and then and then why you're kind of willing willing to be, to be daring and to go against that. Yeah, um, you know, well, I studied enough at university to know that sure. uh, it's, you know, we don't know everything, that's for sure. <laughs> right. So, um, and I think what you're kind of referencing, I know we were talking about our Chardonnay that we make that's uh, a truly I think a an outstanding wine, right. and um, that's a native ferment, but we're picking at really low bricks so, that's right. and very high acidity, so um, we're picking at like 22 bricks and a pH of about 3.1, which is not far from base wine for sparkling, yes. and a native ferment on a wine like that is very, very difficult. Um, native yeast generally do not like those conditions. Right. Right. Um, so we'll see ferments lasting nine months to to almost a year sometimes, and this is alcoholic fermentation. I'm not even talking about malolactic fermentation at right. that point. And um, and so and so. Point. Meanwhile, winemakers really want it to be a pretty quick fermentation, just so it's safe and like more controlled, so that you don't have these spoilage bacteria. Right? That's kind of the more of the the um, traditional way of thinking, or not necessarily traditional, but more kind of schooled. Yeah, school yeah, exactly. You know, um, it's generally with a Chardonnay ferment, if you were doing this on a larger scale and you didn't want to uh, be worried all the time, you'd try to have it finished in four weeks maximum. Right, which you um, had to do plenty at La Crema. I mean, things had to be pretty, um, you know, just because of the, the volume and you needed consistency, right? Exactly, and, yeah. and you're on a different time scale as well on, on, larger, on larger production wines because you you kind of need to bottle it around 10 months to 12 months so you don't have the time to just let something sit and do it at once for 9 months you know right. um. <laughs> so and and but but the but the result i mean first of all you can get you're getting physiological ripeness so the grapes are ripe but still at that that the incredible you know uh low ph and high acidity right yeah, and that's uh, that's all about uh, the terroir of the region, the right. growing the vineyards, uh, being you know mature Chardonnay vineyards, and a really great site to grow Chardonnay and Pinot Noir for that matter. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's all about site, and you know, working in California, I used to see the flavors that I get here at 22 bricks. I used to not see there until 25. Wow. So. Uh, it's it's all about sight. In so that you can't regard, put anyway. you so you so from in your opinion so you really can't push that. So you know I, I I'm 
critical of some people who say, oh, well, you know, if you want to make a more elegant style wine, you just, you know, you just harvest a little earlier or whatever. Yeah, and I'm totally critical of that uh, right. mindset as well. Right. Um, so it's really finding the site that allows you to do, make the wines that are in your wheelhouse or of your philosophy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You can't, uh, you know, you shouldn't be paddling upstream with wine. Right. <laughs> right. Right. It's a losing battle, right? <laughs> yeah. You're just going to make something that you can tell has more of the winemaker's hand in it than of the actual vineyard. And, and I don't think that's why many of us drink wine. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then, so Chardonnay, just wild, cool, cool thing. Um, uh, and then it, it does see some barrel time, right? And, um, and how do you think of, do you do any like lees stirring because the texture is so, it's such a rich, luscious texture, despite having such high acidity. Yeah. And lees stirring is a big part of what we do. So yeah. all of, all of our Chardonnays is barrel fermented. It spends about 17 months in barrel, which is a long that's time a long for Chardonnay time. Yeah. in America anyway. Yeah. In Burgundy, that's pretty average. Right. Um, but in America, you don't see that very often. You know, we all want to bottle Chardonnay quickly so we can get our money back for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and the acidity. I mean, you can't barrel age Chardonnay that long because uh, perhaps you know at a higher acidity, it won't take it so well. It'll feel flabby. It, yeah, it can get flabby and can also get full of VA because um, yeah. you know acetic acid bacteria doesn't. It lives a lot better at a higher pH as well, at a lower acidity. Right, um, right. Uh, so, yeah, 17 months in barrel, and then during that sort of eight to nine months of primary fermentation, we're stirring the leaves once a week, and that's just to basically pop the, the yeast back up into um, solution, into the wine, so it can grab onto a little bit more sugar and just try to stay alive a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah. Hey, what's your impression of, um, and this might be very well documented, but I don't hear people really talking about it that much, uh, barrel fermenting, it's kind of counterintuitive where uh, it actually uh, takes in the, the oak flavor maybe less so or more slowly because you have a buffer of the yeast. Is that is that true in any way? I, well, I think um, with barrel fermentation, you get more um, integration of oak flavors earlier, right? And and it seems more integrated even you know down the track as well. And that goes along with almost any wine, um, particularly even Pinot Noirs. So a lot of our Pinot Noirs, we take brand new barrels and pop the heads out of it. That's just take one end off of the barrel, right? And and then we ferment as an open top. Um, our Pinot Noir in it, and what that does is it integrates that oak a little bit earlier, and and it just becomes more of a part of the wine. Um, I'm I'm of the philosophy. I, I hate seeing elbows in wine. I hate seeing whenever you taste a beautiful wine, a really well-made wine. Nothing, no one thing should ever pop out, in right. my opinion. Right. And I think if you're doing it properly, oak should never pop out, even if you are a have do have a lot of new oak in it. It shouldn't. It shouldn't. You should never go taste a wine and say, "Oh, that's an oaky wine." That, yeah. that should never happen. Right. So I think if you're barrel fermenting with Chardonnay or even doing a primary ferment with Pinot, a lot of the time, even if you have more oak, it can seem like less because it integrates better. Right. But see, that's kind of what I'm talking about. I mean, that's a tremendous amount of work to be, um, you know, fermenting and punching down each tiny little barrel instead of, you know, um, I mean, it's just a lot more work to do oh, all these is. things. Oh, it is. And then you have each, each barrel is its own little fermenter 
as well. So you need to run analysis on each little barrel. And, and whenever you pop the head on of a barrel and do a fermentation in it, it's not like you get a whole barrel back. It's about a third of a barrel. So it only ends up being about 25 gallons of wine. <laughs> Oh man, it's that's that's just crazy. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's wild. I find it very cathartic. That's kind of my morning ritual. Is I come in during harvest at five a.m. and I write all my work orders for the morning. My crew shows up at seven, and I, you know, we make a plan for the day, and uh, everyone gets to work, and then I go out to my little barrel farm of forty-ish barrels, all fermenting, and and I punch them down by hand every morning. That kind of just gives me ten minutes to myself. To, yeah. Wow, kind of, you know, and there's reggae playing at that moment. What's that? <laughs> there's sorry? reggae, reggae playing at that moment. Oh, or? A lot of reggae in our okay. cellar, or or you know, we're a dead in reggae cellar, so we do listen to quite a bit of jam music too. Yeah, right on. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay, so we kind of talked about Chardonnay. What what are your so in the Pinot Noir world, uh, Pinot Noir uh, camp? How do you, you know, what what is the kind of the style that you like? I mean, mm-hmm. of course, we 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 talk no rough edges, but um, you know, is the, is it kind of, uh, you know, there's so much variety within Oregon wine in general, but I would say that a lot of people do classify it as you know a particular style. Yeah, I you know I always describe my red wine making and my Pinot Noir. That's the only red wine I make now. Right. As elegance and power, yeah. I think that kind of really sums up my wine philosophy and my wine style. Um, and I'm always about these really feminine, sort of elegant Pinot Noirs that are a little bit more ephemeral and can kind of take you somewhere. Right. Um, and But they need to have power. They need to have a little bit of gravitas. They need to have some structure behind them for ageability and, and to really kind of make you pay attention to them as well. Yeah. Um, I always describe my Pinot Noirs as... I don't want them to talk at you. I don't want them to, to uh, you know, just be up in your face and smacking you around like a wet fish. I want them, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I want them to be a part of a conversation between the taster, the drinker, and, and the wine itself. I want there to be some back and forth. Yeah. Is, there, is, is Pinot Noir a little bit harder to uh, think of in terms of tannin and tannin, tannin management than maybe cab, you know, where you've just got like, you know, a lot of tannin and, 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 and you know, is it just like a totally different beast to make, to make that wine? What do you think about, think about tannin and Pinot Noir? I've been yeah. kind of talking with a lot of winemakers recently uh, in Burgundy where, where, where that's like a huge thing for them that they're thinking about right now. And that's something that's always in kind of front of mind with Pinot Noir, particularly during harvest, is, you know, if you harvest too early, you're going to have too much green tannin. And if right. you harvest too late, you won't have enough or you won't have any seed tannin. And, and Pinot Noir's skins are, are almost exclusively anthocyanins, uh, and so they don't have a lot of tannin in the skin, so you're picking up tannin from the seeds. Right. So the seeds are immensely important in Pinot Noir. Um, and anthocyanins, really, for folks, is, is the color Correct. Yes. Yes. That's that's a, that's the red color. That's the red color. And it's a really delicate balance, and and it's a dance. I always think of it as a dance to to get enough extraction to build ageability, and and to be to help stand up to even you know beef, a steak, or something like that. But yeah, where it not be drying or not be too much to where it really takes a, a away from the rest of your experience. Right, right. And so the way that you do that is just meticulous, like being in tune with the grapes. And do you do any uh, whole cluster type if you feel like tannin might lack or, you know? Mm. So, yeah, you know, it all starts in the vineyard, of course. And it's getting um, 
pretty uh, meticulously farmed grapes that are, uh, are uniformly ripe. That's a really big thing. And and I learned when I moved to Oregon, I just got rid of my refractometer and and to look for bricks uh, because bricks doesn't seem to have any sort of correlation for me with with ultimate ripeness. It, I mean, last year. Uh, in 2016, a warmer year, we harvested Pinot Noir as low as 21 bricks, which it's is incredible. Is is insane. Yeah. And we harvested it as high as 25, and I didn't look at it the whole time because it didn't matter to me. So it's all about being out in the vineyard all the time, and and I think it's finding whenever your seeds are just getting ripe, and whenever your skins are are ripe but not overripe. Yeah. And I think that's where it all starts. And then it's gentle destimming if you do destim making sure you have all whole berries because that extracts at a different rate than if they were crushed. Right. And I do, uh, depending on the Zena Crown wines and the old Amity, they seem to do a little bit better with whole clusters. So about half those wines get a 30 to 40% whole cluster. And uh, up in the Yamhill Carlton, that's maybe more like 10% of the wines. Um, the Yamhill Carlton has enough tannin and, and kind of this floral component anyway that I, it, doesn't seem like the whole cluster. So that's quite it, as so well. it's interesting that you use more whole cluster in a cooler area. That that to me seems almost counterintuitive. Yeah, you know it would, and I think a lot of uh, what we've talked about with whole cluster as winemakers to the public and to other people is maybe I, I honestly think it might be a little bit wrong. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, I, I'm kind of ying where other people yang with whole cluster. I don't. It, I've heard a lot of people talk about how it's all about uh, ripe rachises, brown brown rachises or stems, uh-huh. and I don't think that's true at all. I, I've I've honestly had some of my own experiments where I've used the greenest stems I possibly could, mm. and just threw them into the fermenter to see if it would make the wine greener, and it did not. Really? So I I disagree with that, and then. Also, what whole cluster does is there's a lot of um, potassium in your stems and rachises, and potassium makes your pH go up. Mm. So um, what whole cluster does often is if you have a very, very acidic Pinot Noir, it can actually soften it and round it out, even if the stems are green. And you would see that in a cooler vintage or a cooler site. Exactly. Interesting. And and it does also really pop uh, fruit. It really... um, so the classic whole cluster wine that we all know is um, Beaujolais Nouveau. That's right. a carbonic maceration, but it's 100% whole cluster. And just think about how much fruit is on those wines. Right. Um, yeah. So that's kind of, if you think about it that way, then you can kind of, you know, pull it into Pinot Noir wine world and then think about, oh, yeah, well, if I want a more fruity wine, I... Maybe a little bit more whole cluster is the way to do that. Yeah, interesting. Wow, you're 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 changing my world here. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, let's go. So, so you know, can you give us just a rundown of the actual wines um, that kind of that are in the portfolio? And uh, we should mention that. Uh, for folks who want more information, uh, there's um, a couple websites, the uh, com, and then uh, is there a separate website for Grand Moraine? Yep, com has its own website as well. If you visit the Zena Crown website, you'll find a very dramatic video of me in the cellar <laughs> and in the vineyards. My wife likes to make fun of me for it. Yeah. It's a good video. <laughs> cool. Well, beautiful websites and, and all that good information. Um, um, so, yeah, Grand Moraine has a rosé that we just released for the first time to, um, 
to the world. So if you're in Texas, it should be available in, in any of your metro areas. Yeah, hey, I'm using, I'm doing a rosé class uh, next month. I'm going to use that, that, oh, that bad boy. Oh, outstanding. I yeah. love that rosé. I made it specifically for my own palate, and then everyone <laughs> else seemed to enjoy it as much as I did. So yeah, so, 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 so Pinot Noir, obviously, and just a light, delicate color, yep, but, but lots of flavor. Yeah, very delicate wine. Um, all whole cluster pressed. I call it a purposely made rosé, which yeah. actually a lot of rosé is just a byproduct of something else. So right, right. This one rosé is through and through purposely done. Yeah, and you harvest it a little bit earlier uh, than... So, so oftentimes rosés that are meant for and geared for rosé, the grapes are harvested a little bit lower, P, uh, lower pH and lower sugar? That's correct. Cool. Um, yeah, we're harvesting... If uh, My rosé kind of timeline is if you're harvesting base wine for sparkling about a month before you would harvest for, say, Pinot Noir still wine, yeah. uh, you're going to harvest your rosé about two weeks before you would. So it's kind of halfway in between base wine and still wine. Yeah, incredible. Um, what else? What else? Sorry, go for that, Mark. No, no, what, no what, else, uh, what else is in the portfolio there? We also have the Yamhill Carlton Chardonnay, which is all estate fruit from the Grand Moraine Vineyard. Right. I love that wine. We talked a lot about that today. Right, right. And we also have a Yamhill Carlton Pinot Noir that is a truly uh, great expression of the Yamhill Carlton AVA. And it's a little bit more feminine in nature. It has that elegance and power that I like to talk about. Right. That's a lot of fun. Is there a, is there a reserve in that? in that uh, tier, in a, like an additional tier of reserve? We do make several reserve wines. Those are available only through the website right. and at our tasting room as well, though. Sure, so okay. very limited production on those wines. And, and they're split up just by, so there's not just one reserve that kind of gets the best stuff. It kind of is split up by block and that sort of thing? Or? Yeah, and philosophy. And, okay. You know, a lot of my stuff is kind of esoteric, so it's, it's kind of fun to tell the story about the wines as well. Right, right. So they reserve wines, but, you know, they're all super delicious. They're just kind of, I'm not, I think that uh, single clone and single block wines are, have almost become a little bit trite. I think everyone's done it, and, and that's, that's all well and good. But I, I, like, I like a little bit more sort of this wine is this because of this and not necessarily because it's 667 clone. Right, right. Can, so, can you give us an example of that? You know, yeah. Give us one, a quick example of, of, of something that, that does translate through that, that, that you're highlighting in the reserve? Um, so our estate reserve, I like to say, for Grand Moraine, we'll talk about that right now, Yeah, uh, is basically it's, it's a Pinot Noir that's a little bit more red fruit, a little bit more elegant than our Yamhill Carlton, our, our wine that we distribute. Right. Um, and it's even less an oak. And, and a lot of people think, oh, the reserve wine should be bigger and darker and, you know, just kind of turned up to 11. Right. Well, I don't necessarily agree with that. So our estate reserve is more, more restrained, a little bit more red fruit, uh, and and for me, it's the wine that I really love to drink, and and so that wine's my house wine. Yeah, and that was always made made to be that way. So cool, you know, that's kind of the idea behind that. Um, so and then our Zena Crown brand has three different wines: the Sum, the Slope, and the Conifer, and they're all different expressions from the uh, Zena Crown Vineyard. Uh, Conifer being actually literally right next to Pine Forest. Um, there's something in Pinot Noir that I did not coin this term. I think it was uh, Clark Smith did um, called Airwar. <laughs> the idea that Pinot Noir <laughs> picks up the uh, aromatics around it. <laughs> so, I love that term. Nice. Brilliant. Yeah. 
Um, and then the sum is a reference to the hand in the land, and that kind of goes along with what I was saying earlier about how we can't really take ourselves out of the wine. Right. Um, if you're a science geek like I am, there's the Harvey Weisenberg's uncertainty principle, right. um, and we all know about that, or maybe maybe we do and don't. It's right. the idea that you can't actually the the actual act of looking at electron inherently changes it, right. which I think is brilliant. <laughs> yes, so it's a reference to that. Right, and then the slope is a reference to actually the part of the vineyard I refer to as the slope that is just. I've walked hundreds of vineyards in my life, and you're always looking for like what looks like the best part of that vineyard. Right. And about 25% of the time, I'm right. And on this on the Xenocrown vineyard, there's this slope that just looks phenomenal. And you know, I was like, oh yeah, that's where the best stuff is. And right. it totally did not prove me wrong this time. So <laughs> I'm, I'm one for you know. Yeah, checking the checking the I told you so world column. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean that's you know that that whole concept is like really the essence of Burgundy whereas like the Grand Cru vineyards they figured out over time that it was just like in that heart of the slope, right? Exactly, that kind of two-thirds up the hill. Yeah. Um, you know, southeast facing in Burgundy a lot of the time they are. Um and you know, and then there's other places in Burgundy you think would be Grand Cru but They've, you know, been making wine there a thousand years and they figured out, well, it looks like it should be, but it's just, it's just it isn't yeah. for whatever reason. Yeah. <laughs> so um, how, does that kind of round us out, out our portfolio here? Yeah, those are those are the wines that that we have available. Yeah, and, um, t- most of them are on the 2013 and 2014 vintages. Yeah, so. I do want to talk about that really quickly. Although I first want to ask you, did I see that you do have a sparkling wine? I saw I saw you hand disgorging something. Oh, we are dabbling in the sparkling world. I, right. I will be releasing our first sparkling wine that's been on tirage for just over two years. Nice. Uh, we'll be releasing that in October. Okay, cool. And I'm actually. Tirage bottling our vintage 2016 sparkling wines tomorrow. Wow. And so you're doing it all by hand? I'm sorry? Are you doing it all by hand? Uh, no, no. no. Okay. Uh, I, I only do, you know, the disgorging by hand just for for, sure. for the show of yeah. it more than anything else. Most <laughs> people haven't seen that done, so it's fun to show people how to do it. Yeah, yeah, very cool. <laughs> the parlor trick. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, if it gets you friends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, c- can we talk real briefly about uh, the past couple vintages, um, just in some of your thoughts? Yeah, Um I mean, so my first real vintage in Oregon that I moved here and lived here was 2013. Right. Um, and that's what a vintage that a lot of uh, us are selling the the wines from right now. Right. Um, that was a pretty cool vintage. And it was, uh, as they would say in Burgundy, a challenging vintage. It rained a lot that year. Yeah. And, um, you know, sometimes you think, oh, that can be a bad thing, but in the 2013s ended up to be just gorgeous wines. Uh they're very delicate, and but they're still very ripe. So there's no green notes or anything like that. So they're fully ripe, and they're 12.5% alcohol. So Beautiful. I love them. Yeah. So and 13 got great cool, yeah. structure, and they're going to be very well-aged. Yeah, excellent. And then 14, totally different story, right? Totally different. <laughs> One of the driest years ever in Oregon. We didn't get any rain from about the 1st of March until the middle of October, which is wow. unheard of. Yeah. My goodness. It was just a complete desert here almost, and very warm. It was, I believe, the second warmest vintage ever. 
after um, t- one, uh, 1985, I believe, was a little bit warmer than 2014. I might be wrong on that exact year, but I do know it was the it's second warmest vintage ever. <laughs> yeah. And um, the wines are great, though. I think we still, you know, we've learned a lot in Oregon how to how to deal with vintage variation, and we still made restrained wines that that aren't just over the top or flabby right. and. I'm really, really excited about them as well. I mean, you've had the 2014 Chardonnay, and it still had a lot of uh, a lot of acidity. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of uh, nuance for a warmer year. Yeah, you would not think of it as the the warmest um, year, and I and I see that. You know, I think that everybody is getting much better with dealing dealing with that. Uh, 2015 then was what a lot of people were kind of excited after that. You know. For that one, right? Yeah, 2015 was ju- was a lot like 2014, but just a little bit more like Oregon. Um, <laughs> right. Got a little bit more rain, a little bit cooler. Harvest was definitely very cool. So the 2015s are kind of like the best of both worlds between 2014 and 2013. So right. um, those wines, some people have them on the shelves now. Um, I like to hold my wines for a year in bottle before release, so I won't be releasing them for a while right but very excited about them too yeah very cool and then 16 in barrel yeah uh, have, have they in f- barrel finished um, fermenting we're all man we've had an amazing run of vintages here in oregon yeah. so 16s are maybe a little bit more maybe the most of the oregon-like vintages of the last three years uh cooler year um just it was it was the Goldilocks year. It wasn't too hot. It wasn't too cold. Everything was just right. Um, my quote about 2016 is the best vintage since 2015. <laughs> I love it. Um, <laughs> are you of Are you a a winemaker of the ilk who likes the challenging vintages and uh, you know almost in a way that you can separate yourself by you know a good winemaker can make the winemaker who makes uh, good wine in in difficult vintages is you know um, there there's there's some bragging rights there. Yeah, definitely. I think we all, you know, <laughs> hope that we can make the best wines in challenging years. I um, I, I mean, I think that all goes back to our vineyards just being yeah. rocking vineyards and our viticulturist really being one of the best in the game. Right. But, um, you know, for me and my cellar, I generally, if I'm buying wine it's in Oregon, it's more, more often than not for the cooler years if I'm going to be putting it away. Interesting. I like how those wines age. I, I you know, I like the nuance of them. So yeah. 2011s, I, I'm flush of 2011s in my cellar and, and 2010s as well. And, and 2013's got a pretty good amount in my cellar as well. Nice. Well, uh, before we let you go, just in, in a minute or so, um, I'd like kind of your impressions as to where just overall the industry is going. Um, you know, what, what, what are you kind of on the inner circle most excited about? Um, you know, is it sparkling wine? Is it, or is it just going to stay? You know, I don't want to be kitschy or anything uh, for kitschy sake, but um, what are you excited about? Um, you know, I'm excited about a lot of things here. I'm really excited that the world's really recognizing yeah. what Oregon has to offer. And I think more and more uh, people are recognizing these are truly world-class wines, and it's not just some weird little state in the western right, coast. Right, um, right. You know, there's a lot of uh, French uh, winemakers moving out from Burgundy. I was at a uh, Easter party uh, last Sunday, and I think 30% of the people were speaking French. And my French is awful, but I did try. <laughs> um, so I love that, too. You know, that, that's really great. 
in terms of wine, uh, Chardonnay and sparkling wine are going to be the next big things in Oregon. Right. Um, more and more people are making sparkling wine, and I've had a lot of them of the early sort of stuff just coming off a of tirage, and it's good. Yeah. It's really good. And the Chardonnay is the future is much brighter than the past. Yeah. Um, we will be, I think, in the next 10 years, people will talk about Oregon Chardonnay just like they talk about Oregon Pinot Noir. Well, that wraps us up. Thank you so much for listening, and a huge thank you to Shane Moore and the Jackson Family Estates uh, team and everybody making wine in the Willamette Valley. I love you guys. Um, Again, thank you so much for listening. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on the iTunes store. Uh, Like Another Bottle Down on Facebook and and, uh, on Twitter and Instagram. You can can find us at AnotherBTLDown, and on Instagram is Illuminated underscore Bottle. 